Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. The Holy Ghost for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not be like the hypocrites do. Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father, who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put on oil on your head, wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal." For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Please be seated. Traditionally, the book of Joel is read on Ash Wednesday and Joel is one of the minor prophets, minor not in the sense that he is short, but minor in the sense that it is a very short book. And yet Joel, for all of its shortness, looms large in the Christian tradition. As I mentioned, Ash Wednesday is a traditional time in which the book of Joel is read. The gospel writers, when describing the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, use images and imagery from Joel and the darkness that goes over the land. And then at Pentecost, when we hear about the renewal of the world through the outpouring of the Spirit, those images come from Joel as well. Joel opens his book uh, not painting a really rosy picture. He begins by telling the people that the judgment of God is similar to locusts who have come upon crops. Any of you all who have uh, ever been a farmer probably might appreciate or have the same fears that Joel is trying to evoke in his listeners. Joel tells us it's not just one swarm of locusts that come and devours the the plants, but it is two, three, four swarms of locusts who bring things to nothing. Joel says that the drunkard and the wine drinker is sorrowful because there are no more grapes to make wine with. 
Joel says that this is a time in which joy withers away among the people. Have you ever had your joy withered away? Have you ever in your life felt like you had not just one, not just two, not just three, but four swarms of locusts who have come into your life? Have you ever wanted to be like Joel and blow the trumpet in Zion to sound the alarm for fear of this impending doom? Joel tells us that the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is near. The blackness has spread across the mountains. Maybe if Joel's sort of images don't evoke much in you, maybe John Steinbeck and the Grapes of Wrath will. Steinbeck says the people come out of their houses and smell the hot stinging air and cover their noses from it. Children came out of their houses, but they did not run or shout as they would have done if there was rain. Men stood at their fences and looked at the ruined corn that was dying fast now. The men were silent. They didn't move. The women came and stood next to the men and looked and wondered if this was the time in which they were going to be broken. The children used their foot to draw images in the dirt looking at their parents and wondering if this was the moment that was finally going to break them. Horses, he says, came to the watering trough and nuzzled the water to clear the surface dust. The people in Joel and the people in Steinbuch's um, article or, or, or book have, have come to a breaking point in their life. They have come to a moment in which they just cannot figure out how to live life anymore. And for Steinbeck, his character's answer was, is we'll just move west. We'll just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and by our own strength and determination, we can do this. This sort of theology is often welcome for Americans because we often like to think that we can just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's the promises that TV preachers with pearly white teeth promise us that we can have our best life now. But I think that our spiritual lives are far more like the psalmist who asks the questions, how are we to sing the songs of Zion when we're living on the shores in enemy land? And yet in the midst of the destruction that Joel is offering to the people, a word of grace comes from God to call them back into relationship. Joel says, says yet even now, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with fasting. Return to me with weeping. Return with mourning. Tear your hearts open for me, God says, not your clothing. Return to the Lord for your God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. Great preacher Billy Graham shares a story of a father and son's relationship that was estranged and broken. The father goes and meets with the son and tells him, son, I love you. 
I will pray for you. And whenever you're ready to get your life together, I am here for you waiting. And Graham says that this son had a change in his life a while later. And when reflecting upon this story, one author says, The fearsome ogre turned out to be the loving father of the prodigal son. Mercy evoked repentance, not the other way around. The unconditional love of the father won the battle for the son's heart and mind. These stories from, Go- from, from Joel, which seem to be words of foreboding and fear, are not hellfire and brimstone, but they are the welcome invitation for people who think that their lives are broken and lost to remember that God is always with them and that God is always on their side. And even when it seems like God is saying, I'm going to punish you, God relents and does not punish. So much like Joel on this day, we gather with a feeling of urgency at this gracious invitation that comes from God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast. Call together a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, get the old, get the children Even the bridegroom and the groom who are waiting in their room after the wedding. Get them out of here and we're going to get together because God's gracious love is coming. When we turn and we think about how is it that we get this gracious love and the answer is, is that there's nothing that we do for it. It is just simply God's nature. We find this phrase throughout Scripture that God is is slow to anger and steadfast in love. So as we begin to think about our own Lenten piety and our own Lenten walks, about the things we're going to give up and the things that we're going to take on, we can be reminded from Jesus that our righteousness is not something that is going to earn us anything in terms of God's love. It's already there. Those things are just a way of clearing out the cobwebs so that we can see God more closely in our lives. Our righteousness will not save us, only God will do that. In this season, we are invited to admit the ways in which we are powerless to sin. And in doing so, we can do so with conviction that God's forgiveness is there. George Orwell, when talking about his time in the Spanish Civil War, shared a story in which he was looking upon an enemy soldier. He was there to kill fascists. And he looks and he sees an enemy soldier running from one trench to another. And he's holding in his hand what looks like orders. And the other, he has to hold up his pants because they're falling off. And Orwell says, I came here to kill fascists, not men who have to run holding their pants up. What I saw in that man was a brother. I saw somebody like me. Fleming Rutledge says that this is very much how... God looks at us. When God looks upon us, he sees our frail, vulnerable creature who try our hardest to cover up our spiritual nakedness. When Jesus came down from heaven to live among us, he lived among us at that level. That the Son of God gave up all his divine prerogatives and came into the world to be a fellow creature in our own deepest need. We think that we see ourselves as God's enemies, 
But when God looks at us, God sees people who are going through life trying our very best to hold our pants up. So, my fellow brothers and sisters, hear this invitation yet even now. Return to me with all your heart. Return with fasting. Return with weeping. Return with mourning. Tear your hearts open for me, not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love, and he relents from punishing. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more, go to ChristChurchTulsa.org. And peace be with you.